DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. Today, I would like to welcome Christopher Schmitz, COO at Remedy in Finland. Hey, Chris, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me on board. It's really a pleasure being here and talking to you guys. So to kick this off, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your path in the industry so far and what ultimately brought you to Remedy? Yeah, let me start with that. So my name is Christopher. I'm uh, now 47. I'm in the industry for 29 years now. So I have my 30th anniversary next year. And I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Remedy Entertainment. So I'm basically in charge of all the video game development at Remedy. So that basically means that we have a lean mean game making machine and actually what the output that we are going to produce actually happens as intended. So Remedy is a developer of, uh, um, we, are, we are growing since a few years. So we are like scratching at around about 300 people working for us right now. And uh, we have quite a few bunch of projects running in parallel right now as well. So we have a lot, we have seen a lot of growth and, uh, and uh, we have seen the complexities coming from that recently. So otherwise, I'm uh, living in Finland right now since uh, since a few years. Before that, I had uh, jobs in Sweden, in, uh, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, also in France, Paris, and obviously also a long time in Germany, in Düsseldorf, where I was heading the game development unit of Ubisoft Blue Bytes. I think that's where our paths crossed, uh, crossed for the first time. So it's uh, it's always good to see people again after many years in the industry. Even though I cannot compete with your 29 and next year 30 <laughs> years in the industry, uh, pretty impressive. Oh, thank you very much. It's uh, I had the pleasure and the like the privilege to start pretty early in the industry, and uh, I, it was just happening by chance. I was part of the so-called demo scene before, oh, yeah. so I was programming uh, little intros and demos and stuff like that. And because of that kind of initiative, I learned, uh, like I get closer in touch with people from the games industry, which was a very small in industry during that time. I basically started with localizations, so I got source code with in, in source code strings of text and localize, localize them to the German market. That was a good old times, like stuff from LucasArts, like things like the Day of the Tentacle, or Sam and Max Hit the Road, or all these SSI, AD&D games, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. So the people who are long-term gamers, they might all know them. Oh yeah, I, I definitely do. I still love that uh, moment in Day of the Tentacle where you had to uh, get the pancake off the ceiling, right? <laughs> you know, by, <laughs> by knocking over the speaker in, on the next floor, so it was actually. Uh, I come can down see you've actually played the game. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I totally did. I, I love the game. Long, it was, it's really cool. Awesome. So yeah, then uh, obviously a lot of people might know me from my uh, being the executive producer on the Anno franchise for a long time. So. And also working on Settlers, so I was in charge of the production of Anno 1404, Anno 2070, all the different console versions. And then also when we were at Ubisoft Bluebyte, when I joined them, it was a very small team, like 20, 30 people. And then during the time I was there, we ramped up to like 400 or so. And now they're much, even much bigger. So that was a very interesting growth phase. And that's something I'm translating to Remedy as well right now. A lot about scaling teams and making sure you develop that scales of economy and that kind of let systems that it actually works out because what i've seen my 29 years of video game development is that uh, a lot of teams 
had a really a great breakthrough with quite a small team, like 10, 20 people. Suddenly they had a very big success, tried to do the second installment of the same product and then were growing to 60, 70, 80 people. And that you, very often goes fundamentally wrong. And then for the third game, they're back to 20 because they just couldn't get it managed. And that's that's a repeating pattern we've seen in a lot of different teams. And nowadays, that's just not possible anymore because if you're operating in AAA, the, the, the headcount is just skyrocketing, as you know. So that's a lot about what, what my interest in the games industry is, basically. It's about organizational systems and uh, building structure that follows the strategy that can actually deliver what we want to deliver. And uh, and there's so much to learn and there's such a great complexity to master. I think that's a lifelong journey. Yeah, I would I totally agree with that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the team building part uh, is, is what fascinates me about the industry. I mean, I came for the games, but now I'm in the industry for, you know, helping to build great teams and, uh, and, and develop this further. But before we get into the topic and this organizational topic, I mean, I was wondering when you started, you were also much closer to the actual game development, I would say, at least from the way you describe it uh, right now. Uh, first of all, is that the case? Are you, have you moved away a little bit from, from actually making a game more to like managing the framework around it? And, and if so, then how does that feel? Are you missing sometimes, you know, being closer mm -hmm. to, to a game? That's absolutely right. So I, when I started, actually started as a programmer. So the reason why I started doing localizations was not because I could speak some English and could translate it to German. The main reason why was that I was a programmer during that time, coming from the demo scene, and uh, they needed people who could actually translate in source code and then rebuild the game and also reprogram parts of it, especially when it was about adventures where you had to build sentences out of let's say to overcome some riddles or any other thing that was not localized even putting in uh, fonts with german special characters for example that kind of stuff so you need people with some programming competence to actually change and adjust the game to the local german market and that's how i went into the industry so i was out of these 29 years i was for more than 10, 12, 14 years, I was a programmer actually full time. So I programmed quite a lot of games. There's stuff like Pizza Connection, Pizza Syndicate, the Bundesliga Manager, and these kind of awesome games from the good old times. Wait a second, which Bundesliga Manager? I, I gotta ask because I, there was one I played <laughs> to death and I need to know who was that one. I think it was Bundesmanager 97-98 and Bundesliga Manager X, these type of games. Okay. So it was not the original ones. Uh, and uh, that was when I moved from uh, close to Düsseldorf cast, where there was this biggest publisher in Germany called Softgold, who did all the localizations and all the republishing of the Mering products. I moved to Software 2000 in the very north of Germany, which did this Bundesliga Manager yeah. stuff and all the other stuff. So that, so I was a programmer for quite some time before I then eventually moved into production full-time. And the motivation was coming from, um, let's say, if you're a programmer in a, in a games company, uh, you will experience this concept of death march from time to time. So that actually we had projects that where we in the end worked seven days a week. And uh, in the end, it was so obscure that you started working four o'clock in the afternoon until eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, and then went home for sleeping because it was it, it, it was such a massive crunch. And after some time, I thought that I'm sure you can do that in a much better way. And that was creating the interest, working more on these organizational fields because we as a games industry, we have to mature like in the Golo times, 
it was a lot about self-exploitation. And then for some companies, it's still that. But we need to offer a professional environment nowadays. So, I mean, we need to offer an environment where you can actually be a family, father, family, like a mother, or a, a, come from any ethnical background. Uh, so a div diverse uh, environment in which you can be successful without killing yourself. And that's very important for us because in the end, it also produces much better products. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And it's one of the biggest challenges that we have in the industry right now, I think, to how to build this and how to, uh, you know, put, um, uh, teams together in a way that it uh, feels inclusive and that it supports uh, diverse teams uh, and, and crunch is certainly an issue we can tap into a little later in the conversation <laughs> because it's it's still happening quite a bit and uh, you know yep. sometimes there's there's good reasons for a little bit of it but sometimes there's way too much of it and, uh, and yep. I think that's yep. when it gets critical so maybe let's dive into the into the topic um, of uh, you know how you structure this at remedy right now what, what, what the um, transformation is that you're facing you mentioned you had like um, pretty uh, extreme growth over the last uh, couple of years, uh, right about 300 people uh, at, at Remedy at the moment. And I guess you're, you're structured in uh, multiple different teams and, and multiple projects. So how do you do it? Like from a structural perspective, how do you make sure that you, you know, keep track of what's going on in the company at the same time, provide a level of aut autonomy to the teams? So what's your secret sauce if there is one? Well, it's it's not really a secret sauce. So, I mean, if you just Google for that, you will find out that pretty pretty quickly. It's all about um, it's all about um, uh, let's say it's all about having a high level of autonomy paired with a high level of alignment. So we try to build highly autonomous, highly empowered teams who can really own and drive their own problem space. So uh, the problem with uh, structures that are growing is usually I call it project governance because uh, project governance basically means who's owning what in the project, who who makes which call, when and where, and uh, and uh, does everybody know about that and does everybody appreciate that? So if I'm working in a project, I need something to be decided. It needs to be crystal clear who takes that decision. And who's also supposed to take it and then really take the accountability for that kind of decision. And uh, and that's often poorly defined. And then uh, on, on top of that, it's, it's uh, often that people can't let go. So if I'm on a studio level, I'm owning the strategic context, the strategic big picture of a project. I don't own the, the tactical components or like the daily operations. I need to delegate it into my team. But it also requires we're building teams who can actually own and drive that. So it's a lot about organizational development, hiring the right people for the right projects and putting them into the right structure to deliver against the objectives. So you, you would usually say structure eats like uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And so that means you need to build a proper culture first as well. So how do we want to be operating? Uh, how do we want our people to act and, and then hold them accountable for that? And the, the rest somehow follows, I would say. So if you want to build a bigger structure, it's about building small teams that can scale. That's one thing. And building structures that can scale. And uh, a structure can scale if the whole thing gets bigger, that you don't have specific instances of that structure that get overloaded by more work. So, for example, if a CEO of a company is, tends to be very close to all the different projects and tries to micromanage them, then uh, if we then start one, two, three more projects, that person will be 
very quickly overloaded and he will not be able to make any direct calls anymore. Right. So, and, and then uh, let's say that's the typical learning experience most people get from when they're scaling up suddenly let's say the day is over and there are like another eight hours to work on, otherwise everything will get out of control. And then you need to ask yourself, well, there are other companies where we're not overseeing 200 people, 300 people, but 5,000 or 10,000. So how do they actually do that? And then suddenly you you might recognize, well, it's just a totally different role you're now having. So when you are running a small company, uh, and you're like a CEO and I'm very close to game development and games uh, like life services, then you can be very close to that, but as soon as the uh, company changes, you have more projects, you need to basically step away and focus on a very different role, which becomes more and more strategic. And that's something you need to understand that you are basically defining strategy and to delegate the execution of that to other to other people. But then you also need to hire the right one and you need to also let them make their own mistakes. So you basically implement processes that drive for a, like high level of autonomy paired with a high level of alignment because that's usually where it breaks that you have people who then just do whatever they want and then maybe go into the wrong direction so you want to drive for alignment in the overall organization that everybody knows what's the big picture what's the medium-sized goals and what's the tactical operational goals on a daily basis but then you also want people to have enough autonomy and empowerment to actually take their own decisions and tend to drive that forward so that's where we are focusing on a lot to build teams where this is crystal clear. Like I said, we call it project governance. So it starts with proper roles and responsibility definitions. It starts with the right team structures and it, it drives for a scalable organization. Like what, what we're doing at Remedy right now, it's, it's, it's not really a magic source. It's like every project team has basically, it's, it's defined as one business unit and mm. uh, every business unit has one like general manager, CEO of that business unit. And that's in our case called executive producer. And that executive producer basically owns the complete success. Let's take all, all the different um, perspectives of a product development. It's he owns the creative one, the technical one, the business one, and also the delivery and, and he reports to basically us as the as the executive board of the company and then uh, that that person has his own leadership team like 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 my ceo has a bunch of c-level people working for him like we have a cfo obviously who focuses on uh, on finance we have a chief commercial officer who owns like for whom are we building this game who are our customers and with which publishers are we working and how do we market that game? And I'm driving basically the agenda of all of game development and building the right teams against that. So that per EP basically has his the same kind of leadership structure below him. And like usually would have a game director, a tech director, a product director, and a development director. While all of them view the same project through their specific lens. While the game director is in charge of how the game plays, looks, sounds, and feels. The tech director is in charge of how can technology support that creative vision. The product director is owning like for which target group are we actually building this game? Why should they care and how can we return it the required return of invest with that kind of creative vision and budget and timeline we have in place? And then the development director is the person driving the operations of this project. How can we ship this game in time, budget and quality? And these four people together built a core leadership team of a project. And then 
when that project starts to grow up, they would actually go further and start several smaller strike teams below their jurisdiction, basically. Because if a project grows up to 100 or even 200 people, then it again becomes too big to really be very close to everything that's happening in the project. So these people need to be able to grow in very strategic roles and then have uh, uh, people they can delegate to. So usually a project of 100, 150 people, what we have at Remedy, you would break them down in five, six sub-project teams and every project team would have their own leadership staff again as well, who would then own a specific sub-area of the project. Somebody like could own the multiplayer, another one could own the single player, then some one of them could own the world creation, the other one the level creation whatsoever. And we even combined it now with external development because we believe the future of work is remote and also Codev. So we are working with studios all, all over the world that add up to our headcount. So that comes on top of, top of what I mentioned already. And we have sub teams with their own leadership team there as well. So it might be we are running a game where we have uh, we are focusing on the narrative single player and then we have another team somewhere else in another country helping us driving the multiplayer forward. Things like that, for example. So, so you already you're making my job easy. You already answered, you know, a couple of the follow-up questions I would have had about, you know, right. uh, whether you structure it in a uh, in different units, and you answered that with the EP as <laughs> kind of being the the uh, mini CEO, if you will, for for their individual unit. Um, but before we dive into the remote topic uh, and and how you work with externals or how you transfer the company in general into being able to operate more remotely. Um, how do you create alignment? That's one thing you talked about a couple times and you mentioned that it's very important. And as far as I understood, you have your uh, individual game units, uh, your business units for the individual titles, and then there's you as a C-level team. Um, is there is that pretty much your job as a C-level team to make sure that those units are aligned? Are there any central functions, any, any other functions? Like some companies that work with business units still have, for example, uh, a central art team or a central design team, editorial team giving feedback back on uh, on all the projects is that something you you have or do you have yep. it completely separated absolutely we have that all so um the uh, alignment driving for alignment is my favorite term because that's quite difficult usually right everybody's aligned because without alignment you don't uh, can't provide autonomy to people because right. they need to understand what their constraints are and what is important so uh, usually a poor level of alignment will always backfire because then you will get something else than you expected or it will become way more expensive in the end or it, uh, it, it it's just like the wrong game for the wrong market so it's not going to create its return of invest and stuff like that so uh, one way of achieving that alignment is that we also have implemented a stage gate process within remedy which is uh, embracing that we want to provide a high level of autonomy to the people so we see that as a kind of peer review tool so we have defined some basic gates which go from the mandate where in the beginning we have a mandate stage where people can, uh, let's say, where we agree on what are the objectives that a project team ha uh, want, uh, it will, its success will be measured against. Usually when you talk about the success of a project, it's how do you measure success of a project? It's actually, you should define the success criteria at the beginning before you start. And then when it's done, you can measure against these criteria, and then you know if you've been successful or not. There are games that create, get great metacritics but don't make enough money. Is that a successful project? Yes or no? Maybe not. And then there are other projects where 
you have a game that is has high metacritics it has high sales figures makes money but you broke the team completely is that a successful project that's a good question because maybe it was the objective of the company to build a sustainable team to use it for a long period of time so it's important when we start a new project we create a project mandate and that's basically a document that answers the questions why are we trying to do this and how are we going to deliver against that so it gives us a good reason why so why should we do it the next whatever game xyz so, and and what's the deeper meaning be, behind that undertaking and that can be quite a lot of different things it can be return of invest driven it can be brand building it can be uh, uh it can be team building it, usually it's a mix of that i would say so the objectives of our projects are not only return of invest they are always brand building they're always about evolving the organization of remedy and it's always about uh, let's say career progression for our people it's about not burning them out for example that's a very important thing for us as well because we believe in we want people who work fast in the long term and therefore are happy with the environment and if you burn your people out they will not be happy with your environment and the competition for talent is pretty fierce nowadays so we need to make sure we keep our teams happy and healthy so that's the mandate stage where we define what are we doing why are we doing this and why should anybody care and what are like some basic assumptions about the project like time budget quality constraints and any other constraints what are the obvious impediments and obstacles in our way already and what are the big risks we see with this project so we we do that usually the, the people feel at the beginning well why should, would you write it all down it's just a waste of time and can we just proceed making the game but the interesting thing is if you push your teams doing that and they come back with the first version of the mandate you basically recognize you're not aligned at all and then you get several iterations until all the key stakeholders say yeah that's exactly how we want it to be and then you delegate that mandate to the EP as the CEO of the project, and then he will be held accountable for delivering against that document. So his success will be measured by that. And then he can basically, in, in that process, he already builds his co-leadership team, and then we run them through high concept, concept, proof of concept, production readiness, and then uh, the production, post-production, and launch stages of, of the game. And for every stage, we have a gate in the end, and at every gate, we have created a group of people we call them the brain trust and the brain trust is uh, is a, a bunch of peers who are like the best experts we have in the studio but not working on the project usually we take like 10 12 people from different project teams who are not directly related to these uh, projects so they're not allocated on them and then uh, the team basically we have a list of open questions for every gate so, for example, the the high concept stage is uh, to create, to paint a mental, uh, accurate mental picture in the minds of the audience of what game we are building here and to show how we could build it and what could go wrong, for example. And then they will present that to the people and uh, will collect their feedback. And, usually, and uh, it's clear this is not where we put the teams on the grill. It's about collecting meaningful feedback in a friendly peer review in a good collaboration uh, environment so it's not about kill it's not a judgment day it's really it's supposed to point out trouble as early as possible because we know fixing problems in a project will use the cost of fixing that will usually exponentially grow during the stages right. of a project so if 
we can fix something in a high concept stage, we should be rather be very critical on that to point it out than saying one year later, well, I told you so, and now it costs us 10 million to fix that problem. And that brain and trust you're talking about, are those people staying uh, in, in a similar group all the way from the mandate stage yes. uh, to, yeah. to launch? Okay. And, and they are, you said exactly, it's, a, it's, yes. a, it's obviously not judgment day, <laughs> like, no, uh, it's not like, like you call it. In, in many uh, you know, game development processes or stage gate processes, it's like the, the one day you kind of you know, looking forward to, but also a little bit scared <laughs> of as a development team. And there's the next gate and we got to pass it, obviously. So, uh. so what's the philosophy behind the gates? I mean, you mentioned the brain trust. Are those the ones that ultimately kind of make a decision is maybe too too strong a, a term here but uh are those the ones telling the team hey listen you got to work on this you got to work on that and if they are uh if that feedback is incorporated into the game then then the team can move on uh, or how do, is there like a formal approval at that uh, at, at that stage as well how does it work yeah, the the brain trust is a pure pure peer review so they are, don't have any decision making power they mm -hmm. provide feedback the decision if a gate was passed or not comes from the executive team Mm -hmm. So basically, they also present it to the executive team, and then uh, we collect the feedback from the, the brain trust and have a look into what they say. And uh, we want the teams to own their own problem space, so, so we're not going to micromanage them and saying, well, that somebody said something like that. We would rather have a fruitful discussion with them and saying, look, there seems to be a risk. Would you agree on that? Maybe... And if they would say, no, we don't think it's a risk, we might ask them to prove it out in the next stage, for example. So so, so, the, so if the brain trust uh, gives them feedback and they figure out something that is maybe like a weak spot in the game, then uh, they and the game team already talk about it. So when the game team presents uh, the, the gate to you guys, then uh, they can already answer some of those weaknesses with what they are planning uh, to do yes, about it, right? Exactly. That's okay. the whole point of the gate. So the... Mm -hmm. It's a multi-staged approach, like they, uh, the team gets a presentation and then we have several feedback rounds where we collect the feedback from the different brain trust members and then the game project leadership team will review that feedback, will evaluate what they, how they feel about all of that and then they will also say if they plan to do anything with this. And then when they're done processing that, they would basically do a presentation back to the brain trust and also to the executive management and saying, well, this is what we understood from you. And this is how we would like to proceed with your feedback. And then if mm -hmm. somebody is massively not satisfied on that, then we have further reason to talk, which rarely sure. happens, I would say. Because our teams, it's very important that my game directors, my EPs, they really own their stuff. So I don't want to get them micromanaged so that it becomes like a design committee, for example. So the stage gate shouldn't be a design committee where the project leadership team or the game director on the project has to please every idea of any brain trust member. That's not yeah. the point. It's about reviewing what we have, pointing out potential problems, and then uh, a fruitful discussion to produce a better game in the end. Yeah, and in the end, I guess, also making conscious decisions about what to what to tackle and what not. I mean, there sometimes exactly. might be good reasons to, you know, not tackle a certain topic in there because it's part of, you know, the game experience to some extent. Exactly. If, if you as an executive develop the feeling you need to micromanage some areas of the project there are two things you either need to ask yourself if you need to educate yourself in a more effective delegation the other thing is maybe there's a problem in that team and if you can't delegate it to the team let's say if you delegate something to a specific person or team and then they consistently underperform. It's also a problem in that team or in that structure and then you might want to strengthen the structure and not solve the problem for the team in itself. 
So I, I, I often believe like if you're in a strategic management role, you are more like a system architect building a machine right. that will output something. And if the machine doesn't output something and it's an urgency, yes, you can jump in and drive it yourself, but that should really be the exception. Usually you should make sure that you evolve your machinery, that it can output it without your direct involvement. And that obviously can also, that, that can mean you need to train the people you have. You need to maybe put other people in charge or, or educate people and mentor and coach them over the long term that they are able to take their own calls and, uh, and, uh, and really own their space. And if you always feel like, oh, what we try to do here never works out and I al always have to jump in, that means that you failed as a strategic manager because your role as a strategic manager is to say, this is our long-term objective. Therefore, we're going to build this kind of project and that kind of structure. And then I built the machinery, also known the team, to and then empower them to make, make, make it happen. And it's a good question to talk about empowerment because a lot of people believe empowerment means, well, we can just do whatever we want. Empowerment doesn't mean that. Empowerment means we agree on a common objective. We discuss in detail what we want, why we want, and then the team does it with the highest level of autonomy as possible. And if they can't, you will help them as good as you can, that they can be successful. And that can also mean you need to exchange some team members. So that's because they, they are just not fit for purpose. And and uh, or, you, or they need more capacity, like, uh, like, for example, they don't have enough production bandwidth, so you give them more producers, for example. That's a typical way of empowerment, from my perspective, at yeah. least. I would, I would agree with you there. I mean, I, uh, you know, when I was uh, running the previous company, I worked for Travian Games as a CEO. That was pretty much my mantra always to yep. uh, stay out of the hands-on daily um, stuff and make sure that we have the right people in the right roles. I mean, we had a very similar structure. Instead of executive producers, we called them game directors, um, but they were also individual business units. Um, so... Uh, I really believe this was the way to manage those games independently uh, and give people the the autonomy and at the same time the feeling of empowerment. Uh, and I would fully support what you just said about um, you know the the necessary alignment for that and, and then the need for sometimes making adjustments, but more on a strategic level uh, and not like on operate daily operational level because otherwise you get swamped. And that's not only true for a CEO. I mean, in particular, it is, but there is very obvious. But also, like if you go to the next tier of management, you kind of have the same. Uh, same issues and uh, I really believe it's uh, what you're saying is, is, is to the point because that helps uh, in the long run to create teams that, yeah. that work. But, but in that light, I, I would have a question. I mean, you moved from like uh, a company that was focused on, I guess, mostly one project to multiple projects at the same time. Um, and, and change is obviously uh, a, a beast that is not easy for everybody to deal with. There's people that do really well with it and there's others that have a, are very reluctant and, and have a little bit of a hesitance to, uh, to, um, toward change. So how does that, uh, how did it work f for you? Did you feel a lot of resistance when you kind of put in those new structures um, of, of having multiple different units? Um, did you have to, quite frankly, exchange a lot of people in order to make it possible? Um, or how did you get it done? Yeah, I mean, that's the daily ongoing business, this kind of stuff. Obviously, it faces, uh, it, it faces resistance. I mean, I'm, in every, any company I've ever worked with, you had these kind of issues. And I mean, in the end, it's a lot about getting people on board and uh, and also giving the people the right things to do that they enjoy doing that. I mean, we need to see where the people are coming from. Where's the management team? We're here to help our people being successful. And if you have somebody who only worked in a single product company on a very specific type of game, he will 
operate in a specific mindset and a specific culture and changing culture over a longer period of time it can only happen over a longer period of time and uh, so you need to get the people on board also by like explaining to them why you want to do that and for example in some companies i worked where we tried this kind of scaling up and change it has a lot to do with already existing growing pains they have so usually when you come to a studio that was once small like remedy was pretty small once like 50 60 70 people working on one game for six seven years and uh, and uh, one day like there was a new ceo he implemented a new strategy and then from then the company was growing and of course some people were concerned about this kind of approach saying well we did it like that for the last i don't know 20 years why do we suddenly yeah. need to do it and then you need to give rational reasoning for that. I mean, in, in Remedy's case, for example, it's pretty clear why we try to do this. There are very good reasons for that because if you're only working on one game for one, for one publisher in a like, work-for-hire environment, which was the usual way of tri developing AAA games in the past, you're 100% dependent on that. And that means that your business, if that publisher decides to cancel your game that can be a sudden death blow for your whole organization for example and the other problem is you ha don't really have great career paths for your people because it's always the same dudes in the in charge and only people could only rise up the ranks if somebody would leave so that would le lead to having like a lot of people just leaving you to other companies if they can't uh, develop their career further it's a lot about risk diversification I mean, if if you have a risk risk diversified portfolio, you will have a much stronger business in the future, and uh, and there are plenty of more reasons. But that that's stuff you can explain to people. I mean, that's not rocket science. Explaining that to people, they yeah. will understand. Your job will be much easier if we're going that direction. But yes, it will bring you a lot of change and potentially some pain. And then you need to work with the key people you want to work with and getting them on the journey and maybe also giving them their bubble and their space in which they can be efficient. So I don't think you should always force anyone into something they don't want. It's a lot about getting people on board and making them understand. And and, and if, if, if it doesn't work out, like if somebody doesn't want to work on a project which is heavily externalized, which is the case, for example, I was the executive producer at Square Enix on a game called Hitman. And we had large parts of this project also externalized to studios like in UK and Austria and, and in other places. And uh, and uh, yeah, that was for some people, it was a frustrating experience because like, like let's say, talk about artists. Some of the artists joined IO Interactive because they wanted to be creating cutting edge AAA art assets. And then suddenly they were asked to manage what other people would create mm. in terms of art assets. And that was obviously not fulfilling for them. But that's something I can understand, obviously. I mean, I'm a I'm a producer or a CEO. If somebody would ask me I should run a QA department, I would not be very pleased as well. So in the end, that might might mean you put some specific people on other roles, or maybe they will eventually leave and you get more p new people on board that would support this whole thing uh, a little bit better. But you should always do that in a respectful and collaborative way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not going to call you if I need somebody <laughs> for the QA department. <laughs> so, no, learned, not, this, not, not this time. <laughs> I learned that now. So um, there's, a, there's another complexity I wanted to touch on a little bit when we talk about uh, multiple projects and multiple teams. And that's obviously the question of platforms and, and, uh, and SKUs uh, in that case. So 
obviously the world is getting more complex every year. You know, there's new consoles coming up and there's backward compatibility and all these kind of things uh, across multiple platforms. What's the impact of all of that on your team organization? Yeah, that's a very good question because we're doing quite a lot of different platforms for our control right now, like the last big hit we have shipped. And uh, you must not underestimate that. <laughs> that's why I'm asking it's, about it. It's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you need to, obviously, it's, it's you need to forecast that, you need to anticipate that, and then build the structure around that. And it's quite a lot of work. I mean, you need build managers, uh, producers per platform. You need to, uh, I mean... Yeah, like the bigger publishers use, usually have all these different certification units for all these different platforms. And then you need the business team with all the different contracting for that. It creates a complexity which is quite intense without really, let's say, it's, 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 it's like people were used to develop for one, two, three platforms. And suddenly that can be like 20 mm. when you put like all these streaming platforms on top of it. And that can be quite overwhelming right now, I think. So that's an experience we're just seeing right now at Remedy. And uh, it's quite fun on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's it's something uh, we need to prepare for in a much better way in the future, I would say. But usually the games I've done in the past, they were usually always for multi-platform, like at least for PC and Xbox and PlayStation. And then like the old times, the Nintendo platforms like the GameCube and whatsoever. Right. And uh, and then, then you have these important questions like what's the lead platform and which of them will sell most and then optimize for that platform. Let's say it's it's work. You need it's it's not let's say a high level of complexity is just a lot of work and a lot of coordination in the end. So I think we have that under control. I think what I would be more curious about in the future is uh, like uh, who will win that console war and uh, how relevant will be streaming platforms. Are yeah. we going to something like Netflix for games or not? Will the future look like there will be like three, four big, let's say, platform providers a la Netflix and Sky also for games and then uh, like they're fighting a big content war against each other. Is that something, is that happening? Uh, we'll see. I mean, the future is very exciting right now. Yeah, there's a lot happening, I think. I mean, there's always change in the games industry, but uh, if I look at what's going on right now uh, with all the different um, platforms coming up with the streaming, like you mentioned, coming up with Microsoft's launch strategy for the Xbox, uh, that which yep. is mostly around Game Pass, um, uh, uh, I think we can say, is, yep. uh, is, is really something that um, is going to be very interesting at least next year and, and the years to come. Yeah. Yeah, and, and especially now with the arrival of 5G sooner or later, I think yeah. they like can just play wherever, whatever. And also then with cloud services, like partially or fully rendering all of that and you have a stupid terminal on which you can play. I mean, we are really seeing a big paradigm shift right now. And that will be very interesting to see as a game developer where this is where this will end up to. Like also like what of what media content people are going to consume in the future? Is it all about intensive multiplayer i mean we believe the single player narrative driven experience is still very strong and might even become stronger in the future again especially if you're looking in these diversified content platforms in the future where not every game can be about massive multiplayer shooter a la, that kind of stuff so so we are very confident with the formats we are building right now so if we and now we touch the streaming platform, so I got to ask a question about the mobile space. Obviously, there's a lot going on right now. Not going into yeah. like legal details between the big giants that are clashing right now, uh, yeah. nam namely Epic and, and Apple and Google. Yes, but um, but 
how do you see this happening? I mean, uh, obviously there's some overlap at some point, you know, if you talked about uh, the terminals that can just be used, uh, pretty much just mobile screens where you could play uh, AAA titles g going forward. Um, how do you see those two markets um, overlap or maybe merge? Will there, will there be still different things going forward? Do you think um, AAA console games, as we call them these days, will be what's mostly played on, on mobile going forward? What are your thoughts? I mean, Remedy wants to develop games for the big screen. That's pretty clear for us. Mm -hmm. So high-end AAA content on the big screen. And um, I believe in the future, people might consume their content on any device possible. But how that might look like in detail, I don't know. I mean, the mobile devices are just in terms of controls and what you can actually see on a small screen. That's something you would need to dive a little bit deeper. So I don't really have an opinion on that, but I think there will be strong developments in the future for sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's it, definitely very, very exciting times. Speaking of uh, exciting times, I also wanted to touch on a, on a completely different topic, which is uh, the Nordic industry. I mean, obviously, Remedy is based out of Finland, and uh, there's a lot going on in Finland, both in the AAA segment, but also in the mobile space, obviously. Um, so how would you describe uh, the industry in the Nordics with a you know focus on Finland, maybe? Um, what has happened in the past couple of years, and why does it feel the right place for Remedy? Well, the Nordics, I mean, that I would count Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland to that. It's quite exciting. And before coming here, I had no idea that this is really the Silicon Valley of video game development. And especially Helsinki is really outstanding. I mean, we have a IGDA chapter with thousands of members here. And if they do a big meeting, you can really see like 500 or 1,000 people showing up. It's like a mini GDC just here in Helsinki. Not right now, though, at the moment because of Corona, oh, I guess. Not right, but not, not right <laughs> now. General, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, so, I mean, we have... The, I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of any city where there's so many game developers in one city. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of them are mobile. That's true. Like we and like one, two others are doing AAA. The rest are mobile, but these mobile companies, they're so big, Jesus Christ. I mean, in terms of turnover, what they make, it's like yeah. Supercell, for example, or Rovio and all these others, they're just around the corners from us. And we all know them. I mean, we meet them for all these meetings and pops. Because Helsinki is quite a small, cozy city. I mean, it's around about the same size like Düsseldorf, for example, like 600,000 people. So yeah, you have the usual pubs you would go, and then you would just meet all over the place these people from other game companies. Or if you go into the subway metro you see these, these people with ea jackets ubisoft jackets and all these others like ubisoft as a studio here ea and uh, unity and epic and everybody else it's crazy really and then also all these other tech companies like microsoft and whatever Every, everybody's here it's crazy and it's a when you when you're on the metro walking around in the city it's like a it's a storm of international languages you will hear so it's not very finished, to be honest. And uh, we have, I think, more than 50% of non-Finnish people in the office. And the good thing with the Nordics is everybody speaks fluent English. Absolutely anyone. You can you can go 12 o'clock in into the chippery and eat a döner. And uh, the Turkish guy cutting the döner, he will speak Oxford English. That's really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it in Germany. Yeah, well, then. actually, I had the same experience. I was visiting Helsinki last year in August, and uh, yeah. I can definitely <laughs> support this. Uh, and yeah. I was quite surprised by like whoever he talked to speaks English really well, not only just yeah. a little, but really well. Uh, and I can also confirm, like the, seeing the games people on the on the subway and whatever, you know, I went somewhere, there were some other people talking about games. Maybe some of them 
them were only gamers and I know they weren't wearing all jackets <laughs> with the company label on it but there was a lot of talks about games and uh, it's very interesting to see that ecosystem from from the outside so what does what does Finland do in particular to um, you know cater to those developers um, or what would you attribute this to why why are there so many developers in, in Finland and the Nordics maybe I I think they're very, let's say, IT is a very strong thing here, like uh, like uh, you know, software development and all of that. I mean, you can see that already from uh, when I arrived here, I got my smartphone and then I went to our IT department and asked them what my data limit is. And then she said, excuse me, I don't understand. And then she <laughs> said, well, um, you know, in Germany, I buy like one gigabyte or five gigabyte. And I said, really? That doesn't make any sense. And then I found out that mobile phones in Finland don't have any data limit at all. And it's like a contract for 20 euros a month. It has unlimited data. And they basically sell you different contracts with different price bands, but that's the speed. So my phone has 350 megabit and no data limit on my iPhone. So I can... I can download like a patch on my console through my smartphone and uh, for like 500 gigabyte, no problem. And it comes faster than my broadband at home. So this kind of infrastructure is really outstanding. And actually, I, I once took a rental car, went very north to Lapland. And even in Lapland, I had that kind of speed, like in the no middle of nowhere. And if you compare that to Germany, I would say, yeah, we are, uh, Germany is a little bit behind on that. And uh, and that's pretty much the same in all of the Nordics. I mean, and, uh, you have tremendous internet speeds all over the place and uh, people are very open to the new technologies. Like when COVID-19 was hitting us, basically 80, 90% of all office workers were in their home office within less than a week in Finland. And uh, that was quite impressive because... I would say I was driving the COVID-19 strike team within Remedy and uh, together with a bunch of people from all the different teams to make sure that everybody could work from home. And so I was going to the office for a few more days, but like from one day to the next, the metro was empty. Nobody was there anymore. Yeah. It was like a ghost town. And uh, and uh, and then the school kids, for example, everybody has a smartphone and the, the homeschooling went over well-organized platforms where the teacher is making a lecture in some kind of YouTube type of format. And then they can even write they can even write uh, uh, exams on that portal, for example. So so kids can learn in Finland wherever they want to. They don't need to come to school. And that's the reason why they don't really have trouble with shutting down schools because they would just continue from home. And yeah, then... we can definitely learn quite a bit from, from that, to be honest. I mean, obviously, some of the challenges are uh, a little tougher in, in bigger countries like Germany, um, yeah, yeah, also course, based on our structure. But in, but in general, I do believe yeah. that uh, digitalization is something that we can learn a lot yeah, from they, other they, countries. They're, yeah. they're very good in doing that. Like when you go to the doctor here and they do some blood test, for example, you, you have an app for that, as usual. So you have a doctor's app. And then when the blood test is done, which happens usually on the same day, your app will give you an, an, uh, an alert and then you can check out your values in the app and even there's an explanation what that means and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So everything is highly digitized and then it comes to the investors scene here as well because there are some very successful gaming companies here in Finland and because of that money that was flowing in, there's a lot of investment capital around here as well. And so there are a lot of small startups that get funded by by, by investors here. And some of them make it like Supercell that, that became super, super big. And there are a lot of other small companies. So I think 
we have thousands of small startup companies here in the in that region, like really thousands of them. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 that's quite exciting because some of them might have their big breakthrough, and then uh, that creates a bigger company again. And uh, and uh, and th that's nice to see here. So finally coming back to a topic that we were touching on earlier on and that uh, and now we, t we talked a bit about COVID-19 and the impact it had on people and working remotely um, in the future. So where do you see this all going, remote work in general, uh, both for Remedy as a company? I mean, you mentioned when we, when we talked about this uh, earlier that you wanted to uh, transform the company into a company that is fully remote or at least supports remote work. Um, and um, where do you see this going for the industry as a whole? Uh, we are we are still basically in discussions on how we want to drive to the head. So in in uh, in uh, March, when all of that started, we had our people home pretty quickly, and it actually worked out with way less headache than I was worried for. Mm. So and uh, and uh, right now we run thirty to fifty people work from within the office on a daily basis. Like our current stance is that we recommend working from home whenever possible. If you feel you can work much better from within the office, you're invited to do that because uh, we want to control the population within the office. So we want to keep it small. So if there's an outbreak, it doesn't affect the whole company. If somebody comes to the office right now, they have to wear a face mask within the office in meetings and uh, and uh, need to wash their hands and there are sanitizers all over the place, but they need to use face masks. And we. We, we are doing constant service to to monitor if people are okay and happy with that and there's a large support on that. So next step on that is that we want to uh, uh, do a remote first policy. So I don't think our office will ever vanish because it should always be some headquarter we have. And we also want people to use that to collaboratively work on something uh, like doing workshops, brainstorming whatsoever. But we, we believe the future of work is remote, so we want to support that in the future. And I believe if a company is not supporting that in the future, it will be more like a competitive disadvantage than uh, if you offer it. It's not a competitive advantage anymore because everybody will offer that. We hear that from applicants right now when we talk to other people. The first thing they would always ask is, uh, well, uh, are you offering remote work as well? And um, everybody else is offering that right now. I have friends. They, they, they get, they're looking for jobs right now and they all tell me exactly that. In the end, it doesn't matter anymore where, from where you will be operating. So we are building our stance on that right now. So, but what we are doing right now, all structures, pipelines, processes, and all of that are, will be reworked to fully support remote work. So have a complete location agnostic way. And then, uh, I, let's say per personally, I would prefer having people in the same t same time zones, obviously, and yeah. I, I would like them to be able to come to the office at least once a month or on short notice, stuff like that. So that would mean for us, you could live all, all over the Scandinavia, also Germany, UK and Poland or like uh, the, the, the Baltic states or something like that, because from there you can fly over within like a very short notice and you can... Uh, you can come to the office if it's required to have meetings there, but uh, we will evolve that call concept for over the next periods of time, like next weeks and months, because we feel it's a, it's a great thing. Let's say on the one hand, these kind of water cooler moments are be getting a little bit more difficult, but you you can implement other things for that. I mean, 
and and that's the question how do you actually do that and then some things like creative brainstormings and concept workshops and stuff like that that's always good if that happens on site so we will always have our office but i think i would like to allow the people in the future to choose for themselves if they want to work from within the office or not what makes best sense for them because it's in line with our paradigm of empowering highly autonomous team and make sure we keep them happy and healthy so if somebody can be more happy and more healthy working from remote from from time to time he should be able to do that without any kind of repercussions on him and if somebody feels i should rather work from within the office because my home doesn't allow proper work because of five children who are making a lot of noise then that should be supported as well so so i think that should be the future of work I would personally totally agree with with that, and I see a lot of change happening in the industry right now uh, in that regard. Um, would you say that um, it, this is ultimately going to lead to more loyalty um, um, in, in people for their organizations, for the companies, because they are allowed to work the way it best fits them? Yeah, that's actually one of the big question marks is the sense of belonging. So if you have a mm. team that is highly remote, how do you create a sense of belonging? And that's... That's an important thing. And uh, I mean, that's something you need, all the companies are going to work on that. That can start with regular, let's say, on-site workshops or team, common team events, like, uh, and the, all these kind of stuff. I mean, if you need smaller offices, for example, because you have a largely distributed workforce, you can also allow for having, flying all of your team members twice a year to a specific place and make workshops with them and get, so they, they can develop some, some better let's say connection to each other and the problem with the sense of belonging is uh, if remote work becomes more practical they, they you're going to compete with a world in within the worldwide labor market yeah and that's the problem i mean if the people that are working for us or that are working for you can suddenly also work for another company somewhere in california for like silicon valley salaries and there's no downside on that for them they don't need to move to the US for that and stuff like that. I mean, they uh, we're gonna compete with them and then we need to have a good answer to that kind of threat. Otherwise we might lose our people and that's true for any other company as well. So it's a little bit like the app store for mobile game developers. You are competing on a worldwide scale and if remote work and remote work will become more relevant, you will also compete on a worldwide scale for the best talent. Yeah. And uh, then you need to deliver the right answers for that. Well, and ultimately, hopefully, leads to great companies and even greater companies going forward because everybody needs to be aware of what their vision is and what they're what they do to support the the teams and building you know strong uh, sense of belonging, as you call it, yes, uh, within absolutely. their culture. Absolutely, exactly. So, Chris, I want to thank you so much for uh, a very interesting uh, podcast episode. Uh, I think uh, the, our listeners will have as much fun listening to this and getting some insights into how things work at Remedy and, and your personal thoughts on that, uh, as I certainly had recording it with you. Um, so thanks so much for your time. Uh, hopefully we can, uh, you know, catch up at some point in person <laughs> and, and talk about the learnings and, you know, we had since then. Uh, and it until would be then, amazing, yeah. Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> until then, I, I wish you all the best and uh, maybe we do much. a follow up episode at some point 
Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure being here. Too bad I can't be in Cologne at DEFCON. <laughs> um, well, I was so much looking forward to that, but well, now it's online, it's fine as well. So we're pretty but we're I, pretty happy with what, what we've been putting together so far, and uh, you know, but we still hope that next year in 2021 we can uh, have some form of uh, physical presence uh, in Cologne. Uh, first beer will be on me, my friend. All right. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I take your word for that. All right, absolutely, Christopher. Yes. Thank you very much again. Um, all the best for you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to a DEFCOM podcast produced by Sven Fossing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.